Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrip, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today's July 24th. You're with a virtual City Club forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They are our public media partner. We're deeply grateful to them. Speaking of gratitude, I want to express a little gratitude as well to everybody who's been supporting City Club forums through, the pa through this pandemic, both our sponsors and our individual donors. You can see a list and more information at cityclub.org slash thank you. Our City Club of Cleveland Friday Forum speaker today is Capricia Penevik Marshall, Ambassador Capricia Penevik Marshall. She's a first-generation American of Mexican and Croatian descent and a Cleveland native. Growing up on the east side, Ambassador Penevik Marshall graduated from both Beaumont High School and Case Western Reserve University School of Law before embarking on a distinguished career in diplomacy. She served as social secretary to President Bill Clinton and First Lady Hillary Clinton and as the chief of protocol during, the, during President Barack Obama's first term. During those two decades, she laid the groundwork for successful diplomacy between heads of state around the world, experiences she details in her new book, Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. Currently, Ambassador Penevik Marshall is the Ambassador-in-Residence for the Adrian Arsht Latin America Center at the Atlantic Council. So today we're, we'll talk about what protocol is, why it matters, and how attention to it can actually change your life, by which I mean your professional relationships and your ability to find resu resolution to all sorts of conflicts. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them in. Ambassador Penevik Marshall, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Oh, it's such a pleasure to join you, Dan. Thank you so very much for having me. Well, I really wish we were welcoming you back to Cleveland. And if we were, I would present you with a gift, no doubt, especially because we're talking about protocol. Um, but what is, besides the sort of tradition of gift giving with among guests and, and so forth when visiting um, dignitaries, what is protocol? What are we actually talking about? Well, uh, it is a great pleasure to be virtually in Cleveland. It's so much better to be in person in Cleveland. I love my hometown. It will always remain my hometown, no matter how many years I've been away. Um, protocol... I have uh, considered it always a superpower. It, um, it starts the wheels of diplomacy. It sets forth a roadmap for every engagement, large or small, for our world leaders. Um, it, is, it, 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 it sets forth a plan on how you should navigate certain situations. And it's, it is important. Um, I have found that when those folks who don't follow protocol, that situations become unraveled, that uh, they become chaotic, or also, you know, your intentions can be questioned because they haven't been defined, they haven't been outlined. Um, what protocol does in today's time is what it has always done. It, it provides clarity where there is uncertainty. 
Uh, today we are living in some very, very foggy times and, and people aren't sure of how to navigate their social codes of behavior, um, how to um, invite people into their homes or to meet with clients. Well, certain protocols uh, can assist in making sure you have a well-defined uh, path in your engagements. When you say protocol is a superpower, tell me, just say more about that. Tell us, a, how, is, how, how is it a superpower and not just um, good manners? Well, uh, there are, within protocol, there these micro details that add up to have a really major impact. Oftentimes, they're unseen. You don't know that um, someone is affecting your mood, that they are pulling you. They're using uh, tools such as soft power. Um, and as Joseph Nye had defined them, they, they attract you into a way of thinking. And you may not have any idea that this is actually happening, um, or it's the mindset of diplomacy. Uh, the place that I put you may be constricting you, or um, the way in which I've greeted you may be quite welcoming and flattering. And so there are so many tools that you can use that will pivot that power off and unbeknownst into your favor. In your book, Protocol, The, the Power of Diplomacy, the, you talk a, a, at length about arranging meetings with President Putin. Mm. And, uh, and I feel like the, what you're talking about, the, the design of the room, the, the size of the chairs, things like that, um, and you, you, you arranged several meetings for the president and President Putin. And I wonder if you could talk about the, how those meetings were different and, and similar and, and, and how the design of those spaces affected the outcome. Well, this is uh, when I, I believe the president uh, truly felt um, our necessity in all of the um, the little details that we would push his way, and and sometimes be like, oh, what are what are these protocol officers doing to me? But um, in the end, he always got it, and it was wonderful to have been appreciated. Our first engagement with President Putin when he became president again of Russia um, was at a G20 meeting in Mexico. Um, tensions were really high. Uh, there was a lot on the line. Uh, the agenda was packed. And uh, I spoke to our NSA directors and they gave me a run through of what they were trying to achieve. So I then could look at all of those elements of putting this engagement together to try to move, persuade, pivot the power in our direction. And, um, and as you pointed out, Dan, uh, it's from the greetings and the path that I took, the manner in the, of the introductions to the room itself, the lighting, the table, what's on the table, is food served, what is going to be served, how will it be conducted? All of those elements down to the size of the room. And we really wanted President Putin to feel the urgency of these issues, to feel, you know, forced into making some uh, concessions, to closing the gap, to coming together closer to our way of thinking. And so we chose a deliberately small room, uh, one that also had the great fortune of having a lower ceiling height, which is known to push people into making more concrete decisions. Um, I stood there, as I usually do, at my post, awaiting his arrival. Regrettably, he decided and this is also a bit of a, a power pivot, um, to be late. And he was a good few minutes late. 
um, as I waited, sort of drumming my fingers and looking at my protocol counterpart, who was quite embarrassed over the situation. He finally did arrive. I greeted him and escorted him down to make the introduction to President Obama. And President Obama was very tall. Now, what we had learned is that President Putin uh, was hopeful in that Secretary Clinton would not be attending this meeting because uh, they had had an exchange back and forth over his election that he was none too pleased with. Well, after President Obama greeted him, shook hands, he stepped aside and unveiled Secretary Clinton standing. Oh, have you met my Secretary of State? And in that instant, you saw a hint of surprise. And there again is the mindset of diplomacy at work, where there's this surprise, you're taken aback, your counterpart's not quite sure what's going on. It wasn't in accordance to the plan that he had thought. Then they went into the room, into this room that we had well designed. And uh, at the end of the meeting, we knew that our roadmap had worked because they had come closer together in their decisions. Flash forward to the next meeting that we have with him and under the design of um, our Russian counterparts, protocol counterparts, this meeting took place in a really big space and um, their seating was side by side and it, it allowed for them to look awkward. Everything felt very, very awkward. Even the table that was between them was an odd height. Um, there was nothing that would soften the space, make it feel any warmer. Uh, the lighting was harsh. Uh, and you can just tell from their body language that this just did, wasn't working. It just wasn't working. And in the end, again, they came out of that meeting um, not uh, meeting as as close in mind as they had in the previous one. It's a really very interesting visual comparison. And that chapter sent me to Google to to look for images from both of those meetings. And in the in the one in the former. They're um, seated at a table, a relatively narrow table, which brought them mm -hmm. close to, together, even though they were on opposing sides of the table. And there were flowers on the table that were, you know, appropriately, as you point out in the book, um, cut so that they didn't mm -hmm. affect sight lines or anything like that. But still, they softened the feeling of the room. And then in, in the other, um, uh, and, they, and they both look engaged in that first meeting. And then in the other, the the photos, and in you know, surely there were a gazillion photos taken, but you can you can sense that it is a, a different vibe. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your Russian counterparts um, don't did that on purpose, or did that? I mean, what, what was going on there? Because because uh, you're not the only one with the superpower. Well, I I'd like to have thought so, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's true. I. I was I admired all of my counterparts, and I do have to say that um, my Russian counterpart under President Medvedev was excellent. Marina and I got along quite well. We worked in concert with one another. We had a respectful relationship with one another, and she would have never allowed that to happen. The young man who was assisting in the second meeting was was a, was definitely green. Um, I think he was just putting a, a meeting together and hadn't thought through all of those very, very important elements. And um, I found that those chiefs of protocol who um, were worth their weight uh, absolutely put together the best engagements. You could, you could sense it the moment that you walked into the rooms, and more importantly, the leaders sensed it the moment that they walked into those rooms. You know, protocol isn't just about the design of the, of the meeting 
um, the the menu, the venue, the seating, if if I may quote a certain <laughs> musical. But um, but it's also it's also about the the agenda, and it's about how well the counter the the two parties or multiple parties sort of understand one another. Um, don't worry, we're all working from home right now, Capricia. If if somebody's got to open it, open and close the fridge, <laughs> it's fine. Um, but um, but it's a but it's about the sort of the the ability to prepare yourself for cultural understanding, and I, I want to ask you to speak a little bit about that. Oh, you know, I I as you had pointed out, Dan, I hail from a family of very many cultures, and um, you know, growing up in my grandmother's um, home when I was young, uh, not only were the those are the Croatian and Mexican sides of the family, but um, we had my aunts who were Italian and, and other family members that were Polish. And uh, we had Russian neighbors and, and, Le- and uh, neighbors from Lebanon. It, it just, it was a mini UN in our home where so many cultures were celebrated, foods were eaten, just so many different types of foods were served and eaten and, uh, and languages were spoken. So it was a wonderful place to have had infused in me the the appreciation, the, um, the, the, the real um, understanding of the value of, of knowing another's cultural difference and, and how that can actually empower you. It's a really wonderful thing. It's a nice thing to know about others' cultures, but it can be very empowering as well. You know, in that first greeting when uh, we traveled to to countries that did not use the formalized handshake, and we're not going to be using that anytime soon. Um, they, you know, when when President Obama knew to greet them in a different manner, it was a, such a res- sign of respect and set the tone of that engagement and and began to um, really. Uh, uh, move the, 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 the relationship forward um, with that individual. Um, you know, I am, I am reminded also that President Obama was uh, such an extraordinary, um, had such reverence for the uh, cultural rituals in other countries. He wanted to celebrate those. He wanted to honor those. And um, it, may I may I tell a story here? Please do. Dan? Please. I, I hope you'll tell the the, the noodle story. Yes. Yes. So um, on my first trip with President Obama, and we really didn't know one another very well on this trip. I just sort of started the position and uh, and dove in. And so I didn't know his quirks. I didn't know what he really wanted to do or didn't want to do. And uh, and he certainly didn't know me very well. Well, uh, this was a first state visit by President Hu Jintao. Uh, he invited the president to um, to China, and on the first evening, it was a private dinner between the two of them, held at the Dayu Tai, which is like the the Chinese Camp David, if you will, and um, it is it is is like our Camp David in China, and. Um, in Villa 18, all the staff, myself included, were crammed into this back room. And um, suddenly my Chinese counterpart, whom I'm just getting to know as well, comes over to me and he's very anxious and has an urgent message. And he says, um, Ambassador Marshall, um, I have a special request of you. Uh, I said, yes. And he said, um, President Hu would like President Obama to make a noodle with him. And I said, I'm 
so sorry, excuse me, to do what? And he said, well, to make a noodle. And he explained why it was important and he explained how they would do it. And it, this is really odd for the Chinese to sort of throw something into the equation at the last minute. Um, they are usually, everything is very detailed. They, are, they strictly adhere to protocol. And so I was thinking this has to be very, very important. And I then went to President Obama and whispered in his ear, President who would like to make a noodle start with you? And he looked up at me with this look like, what? And I was looking, uh-oh. And he, in that instant, I could tell that he was weighing, you know, she came over to me, she understands protocol. I've gotta give, I've gotta take her advice. And uh, stood up, clapped his hands and said, okay, let's make a noodle. And shoulder to shoulder with President Hu, they bounced this big piece of dough in their hands until it extended into this long, thin noodle, which to the Chinese was symbolic of this relationship, how it was going to grow and continue to grow and the longevity of this relationship. And then more Americans from our delegation you know, stood up and became part of the line and Chinese from the delegation stood up. And then they were one line together creating this noodle. It was the symbolism of it was so powerful and, and it exemplified the, the growth, the strength of this relationship. And was there, I um, was, was there a moment, sorry. Capricia, when, uh, when you, when your counterpart asked if President Obama would be willing to make a noodle with President Hu when you thought, mm, no. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I held for a moment there. Yeah, you know, yeah. again, you know, I, this is our first really big, there are, there's a lot on the line on this trip. And, um, and I thought, well, golly, is, is my leader the type of leader who will understand this? And if I go to him and, and one of the worst things could be is if I approached him and then he had said no, and I had to go back and deliver that news. So I I did put a lot on the line by saying yes. And so, yeah, for a moment I thought, maybe this isn't the best idea. But I, I in my explanation to President Obama, really reinforced that this, would, this was extremely important to President Hu and he was all in. I mentioned earlier that uh, part of all of this, and, and I just want to mention again, too, that our guest today on the City Club Friday Forum is Capricia Marshall. She has a new book called Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. I think I remember the title correctly. I did. And, Absolutely. Um, and uh, she was the chief of protocol under uh, in the Obama administration, social secretary in the Clinton administration, and currently is, serves as ambassador in residence at the Atlantic Council and also consults with private sector businesses about uh, using these tools in business dealings and has a number of stories to tell about that as well. Um, there are, uh, in your work, Capricia, and you talk about this in the book, um, and the book, I should say, is part memoir, part uh, part guidebook, part advice column, part, um, you know, part etiquette guide, uh, and very useful, and includes, in fact, like sort of a summary of the whole thing at the end, which is, you know, really like the guidebook part, like I'm traveling to Bulgaria, do they kiss on both cheeks or just one, like those kinds of questions get answered. Gift giving. Um, your book details mm. some, uh, some spectacular gift-giving fails and spectacular gift-giving successes. And, um, and I know that you can actually cover both with one person, the Queen of England, and I want to <laughs> ask you to do that. 
Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, in, within protocol, there are so many tools and the soft power tools are incredibly effective. Uh, gift giving, gifts is one of the most, I think, important of those soft power tools. It can reflect your culture. It can emphasize a policy initiative. It talks about that relationship. Um, there's just so many, so many messages that can come from the selection of one gift. Um, and so selecting the right one is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, um, Her Majesty on her first visit with President and, and Mrs. Obama was, was given a gift. I have to say I was not chief of protocol at this time, but um, there was a, a gift that was given and um, it was an iPod. And, you know, she's, of course, incredibly gracious always, graciously accepts it, but um, it was seen as odd, as an odd selection. First, the first gift to Her Majesty or to any leader in a relationship really is, is one that's considered neutral in nature. You don't really have a specific relationship that you're basing this gift upon. And so going so personal. Um, because was, it was preloaded with some songs and content. And it was preloaded and it was an American iPod as opposed to one for the UK. So um, there were some a few issues there as well. Um, so any, in any event, it, it attracted some attention um, in the press and, and not the best of attention, which mostly the British press. Avoid. I can't imagine the U.S. the U.S. press probably did, a little bit. A little bit. The U.S. press, yeah. yeah. But in the but the Brits, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. What are the Americans thinking? Um, and they and so when President Obama was invited by Her Majesty for a state visit. We knew all eyes were now going to be focused on what will those Americans bring for Her Majesty. And we went into double overdrive on uh, researching everything about her and trying to figure out what would be the best gift to advise the president to select and to bring. And um, so on the day of the, the visit itself, um, Her Majesty prefers a leader-to-leader -leader exchange, so there's more on the line. It's not protocol-to-protocol -protocol behind the scenes, and then later on they talk about it. This is right up front and personal. Majesty finished with uh, the delegation's luncheons and opens up the doors and makes her way to the tables that I and my counterpart have now prepared with all of the gifts. She walks over to our table, and um, what we had what the president had chosen, Mrs. Obama had chosen, was a leather-bound portfolio with memorabilia from her father's last visit to the United States. And it was menus and note cards, anything that we could get our hands on, we put into this leather-bound portfolio. And she's paging through and looking at each item and, and looks up to the president. And I wanna say that she had a little tear in her eye and just said, thank you, thank you so very much. And the president looks at me like, yeah, good job, <laughs> you know, this is great. And Mrs. Obama had selected a special brooch also for her that she's worn now on several occasions. She wore it on the return dinner um, at Winfield House the next evening. And she also wore it more, more recently at the visit of President and Mrs. Trump to the UK. I was excited to see her wearing it. Um, she then moved on to the next gift, which is for Prince Philip directly. And she said, oh, Philip, come over and see what they got your carriage ponies. Well, what we had learned was that she, um, that he rather, um, really enjoys racing carriage ponies. And so we created with uh, artisans from Ohio and Colorado, 
spits at Shanks for his carriage ponies. And on the ends, we soldered uh, the president's seal. He walked over and he at first lifted and seemed a little disappointed in the craftsmanship. And she was like, nonsense. She called over the head of the horses, this very tall man. I think he was the head of the horses. And he lifts them up and said, oh, no, your majesty, this is fine workmanship. She goes, I told you, Philip. <laughs> so that put that to rest. And then for Prince Charles and Lady Camilla, we had brought um, saplings, seedlings from Mount Vernon, Monticello, and the White House and put them in a bucket for him. And he loved it. They all loved it. And I will tell you that moments later after I returned back to the staff hold in Buckingham Palace, on the news they said, Americans get it right. The special relationship became even more special. That's really, that's that's quite a story. And the, and I mean, I think, Wonderful for fans of the Crown and um, and uh, and and all sorts of things. Let me just say, if you have a question for Capricia Marshall, please text it to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. That number is three three zero five four one five seven nine four. Capricia Marshall is the former uh, chief of protocol for uh, in the Obama administration and social secretary for the Clinton administration prior to that. And her new book is called Protocol: The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. It has struck me in spending some time with your book that the protocol and the power, the specific power of protocol is a combination of attention to detail that sort of reduces fear and uncertainty and threat. Mm-hmm. And that sort, when we're in the midst in this nation right now, uh, you said a very foggy time. I'm going to put a slightly sharper point on it. It's an unsettling time. And there's a great deal of difficult conversations that we must handle with great diplomacy. And I would like to ask you kind of what you think the lessons are. There's all sorts of questions I could ask you about. Can we shake hands? We can't shake hands in a pandemic, yada, yada. I'm more interested, however, in what the lessons are from your experience that we can apply to the very difficult questions around race and equity and dismantling whiteness. Mm. You know, it is um, there. It is a, and I'm glad that you, 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 in this context in particular, Dan, um, really reinforced that this is an unsettling time. Um, within the the framework of of protocol, without protocol, um, people feel very um, uncertain. They are. Uh, lost in, you know, what is the appropriate thing to do? How should I be reacting? Um, how should I behave? And then you layer on in this time um, the uh, social media context that becomes incredibly confusing as well, the messaging that is sent to you. Um, when you when you embrace a a set of standards, um, some guidelines that protocol can give you. It's it's it is what gives you a foundation, um, sets your own personal stage for your uh, engagements, interactions, and and sometimes even your own personal thinking. It um, it it gives you some steady ground to stand on. And um, first and foremost, what I had always reinforced in, in protocol is to do your homework, do your backgrounder, do your research. Make sure that you're expanding your experiences. Um, look for alternative ways to 
um, understand a subject matter. We, we sometimes engage in these conversations today thinking that we know all we really need to know. And uh, when you engage in diplomacy, uh, you know that there's an alternative perspective and, and point of view. And part of creating that bridge of understanding is knowing that alternative uh, perspective and, and attempting to come closer with your own information and perhaps um, hearing something new, adopting a different way of thinking, and, and then uh, on, for the most part, trying to persuade people to believe um, in the way that you are in aligned. And so there is a lot that goes into those first moments before an engagement even occurs. And so in these times, um, I would encourage people uh, before they ha even start in on those uncomfortable conversations, and we do need to have some uncomfortable conversations, do your homework, read. Or, you know, there's a whole host of great books out there now that provide lots of differing information that um, can help you either support your own arguments and beliefs or can also offer alternative ways of thinking about these, these very difficult issues. We want to turn now to questions from the audience. Again, if you have a question, you can tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it in. Or you can text it to 330-541-5794. Capricia Marshall, I, I've been asked to ask you to compare the difference in approach and importance given to protocol between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Well, uh, I have, um, I, you know, I, I can really only speak to um, the approach that we used in the Obama administration because, of course, I, I worked in the Obama administration. It is a political appointment, um, the position of chief of protocol. Um, so it's not career and does not last from administration to administration, although there's an extraordinary team of individuals in the office that are both foreign service and career civil service who support um, all of the endeavors of, of protocol and our country's foreign policy goals um, from administration to the next. Um, A deep state in, of protocol. The deep state of protocol, yes, exactly. Um, well, thank goodness we have it because it, it continues onward. But you know, I, I, have, I, I was quite fortunate in that uh, President Obama, Mrs. Obama, Secretary Clinton and Vice President Biden um, they turned to me and gave me uh, the amount of time that was necessary to brief them on these nuances, on these differences, on making sure that they understood the details of the engagement before they stepped one foot into that room. Um, they knew the importance of what I had to offer them. And so if you believe in the importance that you defer to those who are the experts and will advise you well, um, you're going to be on solid ground. Um, I, I just can't speak to whether or not in the current um, administration uh, that type of exchange is, is happening. Um, you know, it, it is um, at times a, a little a bit of a head scratcher as to why certain uh, choices were made in specific instances because uh, when it doesn't go according to the to the plan or the plan that I assume was in place, um, again, it detracts away from your foreign policy initiative, from what the president is attempting to do with his counterparts. Um, oftentimes, that business is really tough. You are having 
tough conversations uh, with with people that perhaps even in some countries, in some instances, we do not have diplomatic relations. And um, and so, you know, using protocol to keep you on track and to keep that um, that the, the importance, the, the spotlight on what your foreign policy initiative is of the utmost importance. Here's a question from uh, somebody who, who has a career similar to yours, or at least that overlaps with yours somewhat. I come from a diplomatic family, and I, too, had a career working in and out of our American embassies for a time. At the risk of sounding like a curmudgeon, I have often lamented what I perceived as a rather dramatic decline in the quality of our foreign service officers in matters of protocol, decorum, and even proper attire. It mm. seems that casual Friday is the norm in both optics and performance. Have you experienced this trajectory? You know, I have a great reverence for our foreign service um, officers, and um, but I I, I I will say that um, I'm I'm a bit on the same side of the of the ledger, and I, I'm not going to put this this label on foreign service officers. I would say that those that people beginning in their careers, no matter where they are starting, I have seen a relaxation in. Um, understanding proper social etiquette and and how these tools can be so useful when when you are greeting someone when you are sitting at a, a dining table uh, knowing how to behave and how to act becomes inherent so that all you're doing is thinking about the engagement itself or what you're trying to achieve in that in that moment whether it's a an interview possibly with a with a new um, uh, for a new position or for, with a with a with a university or you know whatever it might be you're focused on your goal uh, when you don't know, you become a little uncomfortable. You know, what am I supposed to do here? Is that my bread plate? Is that my glass? I don't know. Wait a minute. Whoa, now let me watch what everybody else is doing. Oh gosh, I don't know what to do. And and your mind gets all jumbled. Well, you want to take the jumbling out. And um, and I'm also with you on the attire. And again, I would not label this a foreign service officer. Actually, in my in my time, I recall them being very buttoned up. Um, but you know, the new folks in in some of the office places that I've worked, um, it has been hard uh, to see a few of them. And you know, I'm I'm a little harsher on women than I am on on men because men have a standard. There's the suit and the tie and the, the appropriate shoes. It takes a lot of the guesswork um, out of it. It does take a lot of the guesswork out. And so I'm, I'm, I reinforce it. I like to mentor quite a bit and, and assist women on, in making those right choices. So they are taken seriously and people, they are not fussing with their outfits and people are not distracted by what they're wearing. And again, they're focusing on what they're, what they're saying and what they're trying to achieve. How, it is a related question about how international protocol is changing as our own culture evolves towards more informality and diversity, which assumes more diverse ways of behaving. Oh, um, well, I think that there is um, there is something to be said for that. And, and diversity at the table is so incredibly important because when we have diversity at the table, when we have different ways of thinking about an issue, we often come up with the best choice, uh, best decision making is that way. Um, and so, yes, there, there, there will be uh, some nuances to that. And it's the culture of a business, it's the culture of the organization that is going to have to drive that. 
And um, you know, I, I talk quite a bit about my, microcultures of businesses and organizations. And and uh, when you're a newbie, um, I I I hope that businesses and organizations hire culture officers. I think it's just as important as having an HR office officer because they can indicate to people coming into the company organization, you know, this is how this, this, this place runs. We are a bit more relaxed in our operation. We have an open style uh, seating. Um, our attire is XYZ. We actually even refer to our CEO by his first name. Or if you're in a law firm, which is usually a bit more buttoned up, you know, things are things are slightly different. And people can understand, they can operate better if they know what those microcultures are. The uh, another question for you from a listener. Um, how did you learn all of these tools? Mm -hmm. And are they fluid or do they remain the same? Oh, great question. Um, well, I'm going to reinforce it one more time, and I say it so many times in the book, is you know, do your homework, do your homework. I was very fortunate to have had a position in the social office of social secretary and worked alongside in many of the engagements with the then chief of protocol. It was Molly Razor and uh, Mel French, um, two just excellent uh, women in these positions. And um, I learned quite a bit from them while I was working with them. So I had a really good idea what the, what, what the job entailed. Um, but when I came to the job, I took on a beginner's mindset. I knew that it was important to talk to the people who had been there before me and learn from them what worked, what didn't work. I also talked to all of my predecessors and literally every single living predecessor. You know, I even tried to divine those that had, or were not living either uh, at this time and gain as much knowledge as I could from them. What do they wish they would have kept in the, uh, in the office? Um, what are programs that worked for them but are, that are now long gone? All of that was really important. And then before we would travel abroad, I would reach out to, and I suggest to people to do the same, I would reach out to our U.S. Embassy and ask them, you know, what are, what are some of those, those interesting new cultural, um, if they are new, what are some of the standards, what are the traditions, and then is there anything that has changed over time that you've noted? Um, I would then also reach out to the foreign diplomatic um, embassy and, and ask them as well uh, about those, just, just so that I can make sure that I'm receiving as much information as possible before you advise the leader of the free world on what he should be doing. You gotta be pretty much on the mark. Um, so uh, we really went to great lengths to learn quite a bit um, before, we, before we dove in. And you know they do change over time, they are fluid. Um, quick story: When we were traveling, when I traveled as social secretary, I was with the uh, with the Clintons, and um, we had traveled to China for a state visit. And we were told um, by our protocol office that in China, when they gave a toast, that they did not put that they consumed everything that was in the glass before they put it back down on the table. So we are in the Great Hall. It's just a wonderful event. And I'm seated at this very large table. I think there had to have been 14 of us around this table. It was myself and, and one other American at the table from the delegation. And um, the toast began, and I noticed that we had rather large glasses of wine. Well, we lifted them up, we, we, we did the toast, and then we began to, to consume. And I looked to my right and my left at the, my, the Chinese delegation members that were sitting, sitting next to 
to me and they just took a sip and then put their glass down. So I thought, well, I'm going to comport in the same manner. So I took a sip and put my glass down. My counterpart, who was a very thin woman, consumed everything and did it on each in accordance with the protocol we were taught at each toast. Well, the gentleman sitting to my right said, your, your, your um, delegation member seems to be very thirsty. <laughs> and I explained to him what we had been told. And he said, oh, no, we got rid of that because we found that people were, were getting quite drunk at events. So we no longer adhere to that rule, that cultural custom. So they are fluid and you need to know, you know how they've changed over time and how they need to be applied differently in that current day. Are there schools that teach this these days or? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's wonderful schools. The uh, Protocol School of Washington is a terrific school. Um, there's an organization, the Protocol PDI POA. Um, they also um, have an organization of all protocol officers within the United States and, and all over the world. Um, they share customs and cultures. Um, again, you can learn so much um, from calling embassies, both ours and, and theirs. We're speaking with Capricia Marshall. She's our City Club of Cleveland Friday Forum speaker today. Her book is called The Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. It's based on her experiences as the chief of protocol in the Obama administration and social secretary in the Clinton administration. I've been wanting to ask you, Capricia, when, when in 2000, when the Clinton administration was winding down, did you think, like, oh, in the next Democratic administration, I want to be chief of protocol? Was that a thing that you were conscious of? Or was it, I mean, how does that how does it happen? Because there aren't, I mean, you're like a, an NFL coach, right? There aren't that many people with your skill set. Um, I'm actually the only person who's ever served as both chief of protocol and social secretary in two, two, admin, two different administrations. Um, but I will admit to you, Dan, that while I was serving as social secretary, I kept looking across the way, looking across Pennsylvania Avenue thinking, that's a job I really want. And I knew I really wanted that position because of the foreign policy agenda, because the the focus of international relations, which again, just was so suited to my upbringing and my background. Um, and so when, when President Obama made um, Secretary Clinton Secretary of State, uh, and she then, she came to me and she said, you will make a great chief of protocol for him. And I'm like, Oh, yes, please. And she put my name forward. I was so excited. Uh, this question from one of our listeners, how much of the diplomatic work is actually done in preparation for these high level meetings? Are these meetings simply formalities? Oh, no, 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 no. They are not just formalities. There is, though, um, you are absolutely correct quite a bit of work that is done on the front end. And um, the I have just immense respect uh, for those who work at the State Department, both political and career, uh, who have devoted their lives in, in crafting uh, the proper treaties, um, policies that will move our bilateral relationships forward. But ultimately, it does not happen until the leaders of those countries come together and are seated across from one another and begin the hard work at hand. Um, you know, sometimes uh, they believe that these uh, that everything that had been discussed in advance um, will stay the same once they get to the table and circumstances change. And it's one of the moments that actually I loved watching uh, bet between President Obama and Secretary Clinton. Uh, they had almost like a, a well-orchestrated ballet between 
between the two of them when they engaged with their diplomatic counterparts. Uh, it was it was wonderful to watch. And he would say, well, on this issue, let me refer to defer to my secretary of state. And then, she, oh, well, thank you, Mr. President. And they they just knew when to go back and forth. And and then their counterpart, you could see, just was a little befuddled by it. And uh, and, and then we had them. And I was just like, oh, this is so exciting to watch. It was almost like reality TV happening um, as, you know, uh, bilateral relationships were were being formed right before my eyes. Uh, this question, uh, what advice would you give a teen interested in a diplomatic career? Mm. We've read your bio, look forward to your book. We know what we watch on Madam Secretary isn't realistic. What would you recommend we watch and read? <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I actually love watching Madam Secretary, too. I thought Taya Leone did a great job. Um, I, you know, I would first say to, um, well, first I say read my book. But um, next, I would say that if you truly have an interest in, in protocol, in, um, in, even in just in international relations in general, um, when you are of the of the appropriate age, I would say uh, intern at the State Department. Our interns at, at the State Department receive so much responsibility. There was none of this make copies or go get coffee at all. And we have very few hands on deck and so much work to do that the interns were given considerable high level um, responsibilities. And you learn a great deal about so very much in a short period of time. That would be one of the, one of the suggestions I would, would urge someone to do who has this interest. What about any particular things to watch or read? You know, um, I, I there there are a variety of of wonderful, great books um, that have been written on protocol. Uh, many of my predecessors have written them. Uh, Lucky Roosevelt has written a book. Mel French has written a book. Um, um, Lucky's is, is definitely more memoir, and but gives you an idea about the path that she she how she got to where she was. Um, and Mel's was is definitely more of a how to, and or or not even a how to. It's more of the rules of protocol. Um, but they both of them will give you some background and interest um, in that. Um, I, I I also have an alternative to that is to find a mentor. Someone who is in um, the field already. Um, I love mentoring young people who are interested in a future in protocol. Um, mentors sit on a higher branch and can give you great guidance, um, can assist you in making some of those hard decisions. Um, they can also advise you on uh, what to read, what to watch. Um, they are discreet and have usually the best judgment. This question uh, as well uh, from a listener who reached out yesterday. Um, was there anything in particular in your Catholic school upbringing, you were a graduate of both St. Anne's and Beaumont, that particularly prepared you for this line of work? Oh my, I have to say it was, it's the foundation um, of, of, of my, my being. Um, I am indebted to those uh, instructors, uh, teachers, and um, in particularly to those um, wonderful nuns and priests who invested in me um, in a very young age at both St. Anne's and at Beaumont School for Girls. Uh, my education was extraordinary. The opportunities I was afforded were, were really wonderful. Um, but what they really did instill in me 
two things. First and foremost, of course, discipline. Discipline of action and behavior, knowing that, um, that everything has a consequence and to make sure that um, I was adhering to respect and, and kindness to others uh, in all that I did. And, and then curiosity, curiosity of, of difference, curiosity of opportunity, um, just opened my eyes to so very much during my, my younger years. Uh, it, and I, I, I still fondly recall Sister Jean and Sister Rosemary and so many others um, who sit so deeply in my heart uh, because of the time that they invested in me to, to try to make me the, the person they believed um, that I could become. Uh- Beaumont, as you said, school for school for girls. Um, you have a chapter called titled "Negotiating While Female," oh. and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the lessons of, of that chapter in particular. Well, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, I of course wanted the the tools and the lessons applicable to everyone, and they are. Um, but near the end of it, I realized that as a woman, um, oftentimes these tools uh, applied slightly differently to me. And uh, I had a little bit of an argument with my editor because she did not think that the chapter was in alignment with the rest of the book. And I said, give me a moment. Let me just draft it out for you and, and you will see. And, and she did. And she agreed 100%. Um, you know, as women, we're in a constant state of negotiation in our personal lives and our business. And certainly I did while I was in government. I was one of the very few women who served as chief of protocol. Um, there were the majority were always men from around the world. Didn't hinder me um, in my advancement. Just made um, what I had to do um, just a bit more challenging. And and women are accustomed to that. Um, but what I really reinforced in this chapter is adopting a that 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 equalizing mindset. Um, how can you become? someone who has that step forward confidence in everything that you do. Uh, when, when I traveled the world, um, there, was, there was certainly you know, the cultural IQ I needed to be attuned to, but the gender cultural IQ was even more important often, knowing uh, when and how to behave as a woman when you enter certain regions, certain countries, um, without um, stepping back from my own power without deferring my power away, um, knowing that when I stepped into a room and because of my position that I was afforded a seat at the table and I should have a seat at the table and don't take that second bench seat, demand the seat at the table, request and and attempt to persuade people to give you that, that moment at the podium, whether it was the opening uh, introduction or the keynote itself. Um, you know, uh, creating your, a better social network, knowing how to do that, so incredibly important. And women have a tougher time doing that. Um, I'm always um, really educating my, my mentees on how to do that better. Uh, because in the end, it's, it's those critical relationships that we develop along the way in our career that will help us moving, uh, moving our careers forward. Here's a, um, a, a note from... One, a vice president at Case Western Reserve University. We're happy and proud that Ambassador Marshall is a member of the International Affairs Visiting Committee at Case Western Reserve. And as we think about communicating with international colleagues, how does Ambassador Marshall advise universities and businesses to approach their partners and others, especially in the light of the fact that much of the news reported in other countries indicates that the U.S. does not welcome those from outside? 
I would mm. be particularly interested in any comments in relation to China. Huh. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I, I am any, well, of course, as an alum, I, I am quite a fan of, of Case Western um, and I value ever so deeply the education that I received there. But I've always felt as though it was a, a university that was incredibly diverse. Uh, you walk the wonderful campus and um, you can't help but notice the people that are from not all over the country, not only all over from all over the country, but from all over the world. And so many different languages are spoken, and and you can see even in the attire of of a variety of individuals the the customs and cultures that are on display. Uh, it, it is um, it is important, like in government, that you do that necessary outreach, and and we as Americans can sometimes be seen as insular and um, and we want to be in particularly at universities we we want the diversity of thought we want that diversity of of, of inclusion and um, we have to proactively work and I think case Western actually does a really good job of this um, of, of outreach to other countries and, and to other cultures to bring them in um, making sure that they they do understand how much we value them right now there are some struggles because of um, what will be acceptable norms at universities and what will not? What are some of the rules that we'll need to abide by? The laws um, that are being, well, the, the regulations that, and guidelines that are being put into place um, around the country as to foreign students returning to universities. But I, I know we'll be able to manage this because uh, we cannot stop. We have to be, we have to move forward. And, and we are, our educa the education of our U.S. students is so much richer when we bring in students from other countries. Um, here's a question from a couple of former neighbors of yours, Fran and Jules Belkin. Oh, so my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> just, Cleveland's a small town. Uh, oh. We are so proud of our neighborhood girl. Our question is, if Vice President Biden is elected to the White House, has the campaign reached out to find out if you would be part of his administration? Wow. Well, hello, Belkins. My mom is here with me. Mary is still with me. And I have sad to report to you that my father has recently passed away. Frank is gone. But Frank and Mary were great friends with uh, with the Belkins. All of us were. Um, so it's wonderful to say hello to you virtually. Um, well, you know, I, I have I have served in two administrations and I have served in amazing posts. I want to say the best jobs. Uh, in government, social secretary and chief of protocol. Um, and so I do not plan on returning to government service uh, in the next administration because I believe that it will be a Biden administration. Um, I, I would like to help from the sidelines, uh, help out on the outside if I can. Um, but, you know, I come from the same school of thought as Secretary Clinton in that if when called to service, you serve. Uh, so um, we shall see. I'll never say never. Okay. Capricia Penovic Marshall, um, I need to tell you, if we were doing this at the City Club right now, uh, we would close it out and then I'd usher you into the lobby where you'd sign many copies of your book. Um, and uh, we've received a lot of questions on Twitter. How can we get a signed copy of the book? So I really don't have an answer to that question. But if you come back to Cleveland, we'll do a book signing for you or something like that next time. Um, I want to well, thank you so much for your time, for your work in service to the country. I think all of us have benefited not just from this book that you've put out into the world, but also from the the table you've set for two administrations to do the work that they've done. So thank you very much. 
Thank you so very much for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. And, you know, go Browns, go Tribe, go Cavs. I'm always there as a big fan. Thank you so much. Capricia Penovic Marshall, former chief of protocol for the United States and author of Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. It is available at your local bookstore. Find it. We're going to continue to present our forums throughout this time, either virtually or here from the IdeaStream studios. Next Friday, we'll be joined by three members of the Cleveland Cavaliers leadership team, speaking of the Cavs, talking about social justice, racial equity, and what the Cavs are trying to do to create the change that many want to see in the world. If you have additional ideas, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. For the moment, please stay strong, stay healthy, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear a mask, please, and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.